This week on the show, we show you five key reasons to consider open source storage, an OpenBSD minimalist desktop, a BSD XFCE special desktop, looking back OS 10, Alpine Linux VM on Beehive, root on ZFS, FreeBSD jail quick setup with networking, and more. This week's episode of yeah. BSD Now, episode 482, BSD XFCE Desktop, recorded on the 16th of November 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Uh, welcome. Uh, we are back with a fresh episode with news of well the day or the week or whatever you want to call it uh the first headline is from clara systems another article they wrote and it's about the five key reasons to consider open source storage over commercial offerings and it starts with that storage is the most critical and sensitive component of your infrastructure that's kind of yes we can all say uh, that's certainly true applications that crash can be restarted network packets that are lost can be retransmitted but storage needs to be always on and absolutely reliable. This is where it might seem to make sense to go. With a popular commercial offering, even falling into the mantra of nobody ever got fired for buying dollar vendor. Uh, however, being locked into a single vendor means you're utterly at their mercy when it comes to upgrades, price increases, and the quality of support they offer, or non-quality. <clears throat> If your storage vendor releases a new version of the software that causes issues for you, they may help you right away, or your issue might be exotic enough that it goes to the back of their support queue. The vendor might also release a newer product focused on a different use case and decide to end of life the product you are using. In any case, you are left with just two choices. Stay locked in with the vendor or take on the pain of migration. Storage can be incredibly hard to migrate. Due to the amount of data involved, the fact that it is constantly changing as you are trying to migrate it, and the requirement for absolute accuracy. So what if we told you there was a third choice? Open source infrastructure. When you have the source code, you control your own destiny and have the freedom to ensure your infrastructure works for you. Open source solutions are reliable, have outstanding performance, and offer a degree of flexibility that is not available with commercial vendors. And so they explore that a little bit in this article. Uh, first, they distinguish us a little bit more open source storage or commercial offerings and they uh, start that with a good storage solution offers much more than putting bits on media and getting them back again later the storage solution provides the entire data ecosystem for your infrastructure and your business doing it right can provide your organization a real competitive edge doing it wrong can be extremely costly commercial storage offerings usually guarantee a one-on-one -on -one support and ongoing maintenance by the vendor however the quality of this support and the longevity of the maintenance are entirely up to the vendor. Once you have chosen the vendor, you have no recourse. On the other hand, with open source storage, that is open to all and often totally free with a community of contributors and other enterprises maintaining the software. Though the community support offers no uh, service level agreements and can sometimes be slow, one of the advantage to open infrastructure is can, that can be supported by multiple solution providers choices when you need support and ensuring that if there is a problem with your solution provider there's always somewhere someone else where you can turn to 
then there's a bit of a definition. What does open source storage mean? So that is a term used to describe publicly available source code that anyone, including you, can use, modify, and redistribute. That's the open source software definition. And this applied to storage means that you can look into the storage software, extend it, rewrite it if necessary, or just use it without any uh, separate strings attached, unless you have some kind of um, support by an open source software vendor. And then they also distinguish a couple of those uh, commercial storage offerings. I guess most people know about those by now and have something like that. Maybe they're looking at ways to migrate off of those. And the five reasons listed there, just as the headlines, you can read the details then uh, in our article and the show notes. The first one is the open licensing. The second is a no lock-in and independence from the vendor. The third is the continuous technological innovation. With the fourth is the community and support. And the fifth, reliable with storage potential. And of course, OpenZFS is mentioned, and that's certainly a good opportunity to migrate to. So check out the full article on Clara's website, and then you'll be much wiser about this topic. Next up, we have OpenBSD Minimalist Desktop by Daniel Nechten. Uh, he says, it's been a few years since I wrote about OpenBSD on the desktop or a laptop, and support for modern hardware has continued to improve. In fact, I even run OpenBSD on an Apple MacBook Pro with the M1 Silicon. I was going to update the previous article, but as my own habits have changed quite a lot, and uh, are more in line with the spirit of OpenBSD's base now, uh, it seemed like a new article was warranted. Uh, in my update this article, or I may update this article in the future uh, to add more flavor to the CWM and try to make it faster. But as, as the present, this is a basic guide to getting a generic desktop system up and running. It is customary when mentioning any command file or topic uh, that has a manual page to include the manual uh, it's included in. Uh, and so when you see CWM and then in braces one, I'm referring to CWM as in the chapter one of the manual. Uh, to read the manual page, you would just type man one CWM, and that will roll up that particular man page. This is mostly for the case where uh, the specific thing you're looking for, you know, when you do man CWM, if it has uh, mentions in multiple chapters, you can specify which chapter is the one you're trying to load. Uh, the target hardware in this particular case is a Lenovo ThinkPad X280. Uh, with 8 gigs of RAM, 256 gig NVMe, and the Intel Wi-Fi. So a pretty low-spec version of it. But, uh, you know, the ThinkPad is a great workhorse. I have the generation before this, the next 270 that I use every day. Uh, so they start by grabbing the uh, OpenBSD installs 71.img file from the OpenBSD download page and write it to a flash disk. Uh, and then they stick that in their system and boot off of it. Uh, they say when installing OpenBSD, they always use SoftRaid uh, to encrypt their hard drive. Instructions are in the OpenBSD FAQ. The default disk label layout is recommended for most situations. However, if you will be compiling a lot of ports, you may want to edit the default layout and give a bit more space for user source and user obj. Uh, here is what they ended up with. Uh, you can see the different sizes. Then looking at firmware and getting the networking working. So OpenBSD detects the IWM a wireless device, but you'll need the firmware for it to be functional. If you have any uh, supported USB adapter or Lenovo's adapter cable for the built-in um, wired Ethernet NIC, you can skip the following step as OpenBSD will automatically run the firmware or FW underscore update command on first boot and download uh, said firmware. Um, but if you know the wireless is your only connection to the network, then on another computer that does have 
working network, format a USB stick uh, as FAT and copy everything uh, from the OpenBSD firmware archive over to it. And then you can uh, point that uh, at the firmware update tool and it'll grab the stuff that you need. Uh, so then on first boot, uh, so you want to insert your USB disk with the firmware, mount it and copy the firmware over and install it. And they have instructions how to do that in the article. Then you can connect to the Wi-Fi, you know, join some Wi-Fi network with this key uh, and set it up for autoconf. Uh, that's it. When you next reboot, it will uh, connect automatically. If you ever need to manually reset your network interfaces, you can bring them up and down with the net start command. For performance, it is recommended to disable uh, updating the A time or last access time on the file system to avoid, uh, you know, having to write every time you read something. Um, for your home directory, you can increase performance by setting soft dep or soft dependencies uh, mount option, which will prevent the file system update uh, metadata from being updated immediately, and we'll try to batch that. Uh, so it's recommended for critical file system mount points where it can cause problems if the user data. Uh, so for the root system, you probably don't want that setting, uh, but for your user data, it's probably fine. And so they have an example of what their uh, ETC FS tab looks like with all those settings. Uh, and then they say, it's also very desirable, especially on a laptop, to enable the advanced power management daemon uh, so that your CPU will scale back and save some battery. Uh, one side effect of this is on certain systems that have a CPU will run full speed when connected to uh, wall power uh, and at its lowest speed when on battery. Uh, one workaround of this is to use the capital L flag, the manual mode, and set which mode you want. Then they talk about configuring Xenocara, which is OpenBSD's fork of Xorg. Uh, so they get that up and running, uh, get that set up. Uh, and configuring their user in Duaz, uh, which is an alternative to sudo. Then adding their user to the staff group uh, so that they'll run with uh, different login.conf where they're allowed to create more processes and so on. And then they're tuning the kernel a little bit to allow uh, 4,000 threads and 32,000 open files. Configuring the uh, tap to click on their trackpad setting up their .x session file to do things how they like. And at this point, once you reboot, uh, you'll benefit from all the tweaks and you'll get a GUI. Uh, so if you didn't make any typos, you should be greeted with the Xeno Desktop Manager, uh, which will basically be a login screen and let you launch your GUI. Uh, and they also talk about setting up some packages and using syspatch uh, to apply all the patches. So, you know, installing XFCE and message bus, getting dbus running, setting that all up, uh, setting up the RC file for CWM uh, so that they can bind the keys to, you know, cycle between their windows and so on. Uh, and then they also control the forcing uh, GPU acceleration on for Firefox so that it'll perform well. Uh, and then they're good to go. Mm -hmm. Looks nice. Pretty straightforward to get to a well set up minimalist desktop. And in our news roundup, we're staying a little bit with the desktop. Uh, we found BSD XFCE on GitHub. So what is BSD-XFCE? It's a collection of scripts and FreeBSD file system configurations to install a full-fledged and high-performance XFCE environment, especially organized or optimized for desktop and workstation use without the hassle and with a very beautiful looking for classic OS X users. So they have a little disclaimer here in, in 
bold. This project doesn't want to be an OS X clone on FreeBSD or whatever. The installation of the macOS skin pack is totally optional. The base system installation and configurations are the big deal. And they, of course, provide a screenshot so that you know what you're getting. And below in the features, they list they, that they install a complete XFCE desktop from the latest repo. It installs Creative Suite, uh, audio and video image editing applications, enables the high quality of the sound server with Jack by default, enables the auto mount from many file systems, latest NVIDIA graphics drivers available, but no AMD and Intel support for now. Um, they also enable Linux compatibility layer, which is the default for CentOS 7. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, but defaults to CentOS 11. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> enables the webcam support by default, so you can do video conferencing and show your face. Enables general system performance for desktop use, so that it's a bit uh, more uh, snappy. Uh, PF firewall and security flags enabled by default. Very nice. Updated CPU microcodes and improves FreeBSD boot times. Ah, all right. And you can find all the information in there and, of course, clone the repo and start getting that desktop yourself. Yep. Uh, next up, over on IT Notes, uh, we have creating an Alpine Linux VM on Beehive with root on ZFS and optional encryption. Uh, so this starts off, uh, Beehive is great and we're using it with a lot of different guest operating systems. One of our favorite Linux distributions is Alpine Linux. It's great as a Docker or LXC slash LXD host. Uh, it's light, stable, and easily manageable. On FreeBSD, the VM Beehive tool already provides a good template for Alpine Linux, but it's based on the plain standard image and boots with ext4. We need uh, Alpine Extended ISO that includes the ZFS module. So let's create a new Alpine Linux Beehive VM. So they use the VM Beehive package and do VM create, type Alpine, make a 50 gig image with four gigs of RAM and two CPUs. And then they edit the configuration and set uh, a specific grub invocation uh, for booting the installer and set that up. And then configure for when they're actually running to use the uh, long-term support kernel and set it up with rootfs type equals zfs and making it load the xt4 and zfs modules. So then once they do the installation of that Alpine extended ISO, uh, they can just follow the Alpine Linux wiki guide on how to set it up with zfs. And remember that you're dealing with the VDA devices, not SDA, because uh, in this case, they were using Vertio. Although if you read Clara's article recently, you would know you want to make it use the NVMe disk emulation rather than the Vertio to get more performance. Mm -hmm. And they say, if you don't want to have an encrypted root data set, uh, you can just skip setting the encryption line when you're doing the zpool and ZFS create commands. Okay, that's quick and straightforward. Very cool. Yeah, it's just uh, using a slightly different ISO and adding some extra bits to grub to tell it to load that uh, ZFS kernel module as part of boot. Uh, from the init RAMFS so that it will be able to boot off of a ZFS root file system. Mm -hmm. Just remember that you will need to update that uh, uh, init RAMFS if you ever upgrade the version of ZFS so that it matches. Ah, uh, yes. It's able to read the pool. Yeah, so it knows Just like how you have to update the boot code on FreeBSD when, after you run zpool upgrade. Yeah, so that it knows about the pool and new features and stuff. Exactly, it has to understand the, the features to be able to read from the pool uh, and actually give you the, a bootable system. Yeah, which is what most people like. Um, we 
uh, also have something for the jail users. I previously jail quick setup with networking, the 2022 edition. Uh, so we can probably skip what is a FreeBSD jail because um, a lot of our listeners will know this by heart. And let's just move into the let's get started section. In this post, we'll create a FreeBSD jail for a common Lisp environment. Here we won't use any jail management tool. In fact, it's simple enough to manage FreeBSD jails directly if you don't create many. And in this post, they're using FreeBSD 13.1 and the cloud hosting service is Vulture, but this could be any version or any kind of cloud provider. Okay. Uh, let's create a folder, uh, user jail in this case, and uh, under that is a jail called Roswell. And always nice to see what people name their boxes. The built-in FreeBSD installer BSD install directly supports installing a system for use with jails. So run BSD install jail as an option, and then the directory where it should go, in this case, our user jail Roswell. Okay, then we enter the FreeBSD installer for jails. Okay, first you pick a mirror if you like, then you chose, in this case, the lib32 compatibility libraries. Um, so that's, if you've installed FreeBSD, there's a couple of these images or uh, installed screens familiar to you, then it goes right into extracting the installation archive, the base and the lib32. And then it's time to set the root password and select a couple of services that should run. And of course, create an unprivileged user so that you don't do everything as root. All right, then you configure the FreeBSD jail and then networking. This is done with config files, so you drop out of the installer after the user is created, and then you can edit your roswell.conf for your specific jail and start giving it an IP address and what kind of uh, you know script should run on execute uh, and start and end when that jail stops. And the rc.conf settings are listed as well, so they clone their interface LO1. Do an ifconfig l one with inet 127.0.1.1 to have that separate network just for the jail. And uh, in the pf.conf, they do a nut on the vtnet0 from the 127.0.1.1 to the external interface. And that way you have networking in your beehive jail. Uh, beehive jail. <laughs> in your Roswell jail, of course. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Then you reboot your host and here we are. If you run JLS, the JL is listed with its IP address. And now you can go JXEC Roswell Elon LS, or you start a shell in there to go into that environment. And then you can do all kinds of interesting installations. Like here in this case, it's the common Lisp environment, but uh, at this point, you are pretty flexible what to install in the jail. And then they have uh, even more, you know, boxes in the box, in the box. Run Roswell inside the Roswell FreeBSD jail. So that's kind of a, a thing. Um, they also show you how to do that. And sure enough, that's the setup. There's a couple more for the IDE in common Lisp. Um, but if you're doing something else with the jail, that initial setup does it for you. Very nice. Okay, uh, what's next? Ah, Beastie Bits. We have collected a couple of small uh, items for you that will be of interest. The first one, well, that's kind of a big thing. EuroBeastieCon videos are happening and are appearing more and more on the YouTube channel. Yep, and I think so... uh, almost all of them are up. I think there were a couple that still required a bit of editing to get them uh, in shape for posting. But uh, most of the talks are now posted. 
Yeah, excellent. If you missed Vienna completely or that one talk, you went to, uh, you had to go to the other room, for example, or whatever reason, you had a good hallway track discussion, then you missed that and you can now watch those. So that's good. Yes, and it'll be nice to catch up on uh, the ones I missed because I was too busy giving my own talk and, and so on. Yeah, we recorded a couple podcasts or uh, smaller podcast uh, interviews. And so I also missed a couple. But uh, they're there. And thanks again to the organizers who made the recording possible. And uh, um, and Patrick uh, and team for yeah, actually doing TV. the recording. Exactly. Yeah. Without him, we would have no videos and we had to you know remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> so next up from the OpenBSD journal we have LibreSSL 3.6.1 has been released so Brent Cook uh, announced that he said we have released uh, LibreSSL uh, 3.6.1 which will be arriving in the open or the LibreSSL directory of your local OpenBSD mirror very soon this is the first stable portable LibreSSL branched from OpenBSD 7.2 uh, includes a couple of fixes from the 3.6.0 a custom verification callback uh, could cause the X509 verifier to fail to store errors resulting in leaf certificate verification. Uh, that was reported by Ilya Shpistin. Uh, they also unbroke the ASN1 indirect length encoding uh, and fixed the Endian detection on macOS. Uh, if you want to see the full list of changes between LibreSSL 3.5 and 3.6, they have a link uh, to the full release notes there. And so they say LibreSSL project continues to improve uh, and continues the improvement of the code base to reflect modern, safe programming practices. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks to all the contributors who helped make this release possible. Mm -hmm. The next one is a Raspberry Pi 4 with FreeBSD 13 release, a perfect miniature home lab uh, by Corey Steven, PhD. And that is a tutorial or more like a blog post. Like more like a blog post. Um, yeah, they talk about um, about the, the the little Raspberry Pi itself with the heatsink they got, and then they uh, were talking about getting 13 release um, with a bit of help from the FreeBSD R mailing list, uh, getting that running, and a couple of uh, things they did uh, on the Pi. Yep, running a, a murmur server. Uh to do mumble voice communication, running their favorite IRC channel, uh, and so on. All from a Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. That's quite a nice box, right? To do some small uh, or bigger <laughs> tasks, depending on what your needs are. And uh, AsiaBSDCon has its 2023 call for papers up. So if you want to get to Tokyo or give a talk at the conference at the end of March, uh, beginning of April, then definitely submit something and they post they posted the schedule as uh, so we have until the 15th of December 2022 to submit for tutorials and the deadline for paper submissions is also the 15th of December and they will notify you by the 24th of January 2023 so don't wait submit something you need to submit a paper if you want to give a talk for um, the tutorials it's a bit uh, less but you definitely need tutorial material anyway um so definitely get going if you want to attend the conference as a speaker bsd now is sponsored by tarsnap everyone needs backups and tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure 
your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated in them so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts those with your local private key, which never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone would have been able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they cannot access it because it's still encrypted. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find some errors in the code. And with clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, I think we jumped into our feedback and questions section. We collected a couple of uh, your questions and feedback. That's always good. And we love hearing from you on our email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv, so that this queue will not run empty too soon. And uh, the first one is John with a question about Alan's meetup. That's uh, nice bark. No, not nice bark, right? Hamburg. Hamburg. Um, and the question is short and sweet. Uh, can you please ask Alan, I'm doing that right now, to advertise his own meetup on the show? Next in person meetup will be Tuesday, December 13th. Oh, that's oh, classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the Hamilton BSD user group will have their uh, last meeting of the year, which I think will also be the second meeting of the year because it's been a weird year. Uh, but yes, the second Tuesday of every month, we have our meetings. A lot of those have been online recently uh, or, you know, uh, every meeting after our very first one has been online, basically. Uh, we did manage to meet up in person uh, in the summer uh, once, uh, but we want to get one more in-person thing before the end of the year. So Tuesday, December 13th at the Boston Pizza Restaurant uh, on Upper James in Hamilton. Uh, and I hope to see a bunch of people there. It'll be nice uh, to see everybody one more time before the end of the year. Yeah, and exchange some BSD stories and uh, help each other. Some yeah, we always uh, talk about a bunch of stuff. You know, answer BSD and ZFS questions, um, and just talk about whatever people want to talk about, what they've been doing with BSD, and you know, we've been looking at. Uh, improving crypto acceleration on AMD CPUs for ZFS and just talking about Poodrear and problems people run into and managing stuff or uh, even just interesting tools people use. Uh, you know, kind of a, I know John, who wrote in, actually showed off last week, uh, last month's meeting, or I guess this month's meeting, uh, which was last week, um, a tool he uses called, I think, Text Expander or something like that, that does kind of like autocomplete uh, but in any uh, kind of terminal on your machine uh, and using that to do interesting stuff like, you know, I'm going to type out this short thing and, and it's going to expand into this, you know, long command that I have to do all the time. So oh, yeah. To save a lot of time. Yeah, that's a super time saver. And you never get it wrong once you have it uh, saved. Well, yes. Yeah, definitely do uh, meetups. Uh, or if you join this one via video, that's also good to see how it's going to be. And uh, yeah, thank you, John, for this nice plug here in our own show. <laughs> Very good. And next up is Matthew with an A time uh, and question. Okay. 
um, that goes like this. Been a listener since the first episode. Love the show. Please keep it up. Thank you. That's nice feedback. Uh, yeah, we try to. We, especially living on such good feedback, we will continue this kind of recording every other week. Uh, an episode or two ago, the two of you were asking or debating the need or usefulness of keeping a time active and what's what it's still used or needed for. The answer here is shared files. The NFS subsystem has excellent file lock checks in place. Even with lower latency, modern switches like link aggregation complicates this. It's still possible that two connections will compete for file access and lock first. The A time attribute gives the final vote in who gets the file. Computer A and computer B both ask for file one at the exact same time. The A time value is sent back to both computers. The computer that reports back the oldest A time, meaning they got the reply back first, wins the tie. Now, time for my question. I have a FreeBSD ZFS file server that's been running for several years. Since 11.2 release, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow, that's quite old. Uh, since upgrading to 13.1 release, my ZFS pool does not load automatically. I need to manually run ZPool import storage pool. My boot drive is UFS. ZFS pool is a simple RAID Z1, and he provides his ZPool um, status output. Uh, so that might be a problem with how you upgrade it. If during your upgrade you didn't merge in the new files in uh, etc slash rc.d, uh, as part of 13, there's a new rc.d script called zpool, in addition to the ZFS one, that takes care of the import. Um, and the other thing is the cache file location change, but that should have been fine. Uh, but yes, if you're missing the etc rc.d slash zpool command, uh, then that's the thing that normally would import your pool for you on 13.0 and later. Uh, and so if that didn't get brought in as part of your upgrade somehow, uh, that's likely what is causing the pool not to be auto-imported. Back on 12, the kernel uh, auto-imported everything it saw. Uh, and at 13, we changed the behavior of, uh, we made a service that does it so that it doesn't have as much chance of breaking things and so that you have the option of not doing that if that's not what you want. So for A time, um, if it's the on-disk A time from ZFS, then it's going to change and be the same for both. Um, and so they're not going to be different. And then if it's, on the NFS client and it's doing its own A time thing, uh, then it's still going to be different on the clients whether or not you're using A time on ZFS. Uh, and so it seems to me that you're still fine setting A time equals off on ZFS to avoid writing to the disk every time somebody reads something, especially with a lot of snapshots. Uh, that can cause all the snapshots to keep growing because of all the metadata updates uh, just Dude. to update that A time. Yeah, that's not what you typically want just for this kind of thing. Uh, when I when I read NFS, I'm always thinking, oh, I always wanted to do the PNFS server and at least trying it out a little bit, how it's working on FreeBSD, but I haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, one something maybe for the holidays. <laughs> um, yeah, but definitely good uh, feedback here. And hopefully we could help you with that uh, pool import. So next time you have it automatically and don't have to do it with uh, zpool import. Yeah, so definitely look at that uh, rc.d slash zpool script uh, and make sure that it does the right thing when it runs. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to do. And that way you have your pool right there. Okay, uh, who's next? Ah, Valentin uh, or Valentine. Uh, becoming a FreeBSD developer. Ah, here we go. Hey, BSD Now team. I'm a web developer. Uh, mostly I use Ruby and sometimes Golang. And I have a huge will to start doing system programming. I tried to dig into FreeBSD codebase and try to understand the OS concept, but it was too much new information, so I gave up. Uh, you're not the first one. 
been there, done that. What is the best way to dive into FreeBSD and BSD world in general and then start being a BSD developer? Uh, I've got FreeBSD on my laptop, but I found that I want a bit deeper experience, but I don't uh, have such tasks at work or in my free time. I'd be glad to hear your experience and the way you learn BSDs and contribute to the BSD world. I really appreciate the podcast you do. You're great. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, as with many things, it really comes down to in order to have the kind of motivation and stick with itness you would need uh, to do this, you have to pick a project you care about. Uh, and yeah, like you said, if you just try to dig in the whole FreeBSD code base, it'll just melt your eyeballs. <laughs> you know, the way I got started was I picked something very specific. It's like, I'm going to modify the installer to make it able to install root on ZFS easily. Uh, and I'm like, it's just shell script, so it's not going to be scary, and I can do that. And I learned a lot about shell script. Um, and then there was like, well, there's a little couple of tweaks that could be made to the C part of the installer. Let's try to learn some of that. And, you know, I made my first user space tool to try to basically to be able to parse UCL config files from a shell script by using a little command interface. And that's where I learned some basic C. And then I jumped in the deep end and decided I was going to teach the bootloader to be able to boot from Geli encrypted disks. Uh, and that got uh, a lot more complicated. But I think what you'd want to do is pick a small problem uh, for many open source projects and people, especially if you're using FreeBSD on your laptop, is is there some small nag or niggle or, or itch, some little thing that's bothering you about the way it works? And figure out how to change it. Uh, and especially since it's something that will make your life better or easier, uh, you'll be more motivated to keep working on it. Mm -hmm. And then after you do that a couple times, uh, you'll feel much more comfortable digging into more and more exotic things. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any other great recommendations. On the wiki, there used to be a page called Junior Jobs for people getting started. I don't know if it's still there. Even if it is, it's probably quite out of date, but it might give you some ideas uh, to help you brainstorm something that will be not overly large, but maybe actually impactful to somebody. Yeah, you could also hang out uh, or create an account on FreeBSD's Fabricator instance or just code reviews, reviews.freebsd.org, where you can look at other people's code or stuff they post there. And you can, like, because you have code experience, you can kind of distinguish a loop from an if statement, right? Um, and there you could basically provide some useful feedback and help out with maybe code cleanup or, oh, what happens if that if uh, is greater than zero or some kind of thing. Um, and that way you also get into how the code looks, what people discuss, what kind of issues are discussed there. And people recognize you also as someone uh, helping out in uh, reviewing code. Uh, other than that, uh, the bug database might be another thing, Bugzilla, where you can find uh, issues that other people have posted and you may have found a solution or the patches people test or post could be tested, whether they're still accurate. And if they're not, then you could brush them up and uh, fix those and make them work again on recent previous versions. And slowly but steadily, you can find uh, your niche in the project. Because I've talked to a lot of developers uh, a couple of weeks ago at the um, hackathon and also at uh, Vienna. Uh, and it's pretty much developers pick their uh, areas of interest, like networking or storage or Alan mentioned the boot code or installer. And of course, they could look into other parts and get into that. But typically, it's not their yeah, thing. It's, or it's, they have well, in particular, it's 
when it's something that's interesting to you, it's much easier to find the motivation to spend some of your free time actually working on this. Exactly. Uh, and it's kind of like we talked about with the idea of home lab and the sysadmin stuff too. It's like, just pick something, you know, set us a, a, a small target. I, I want to do this, whether it's, I want to set up a web server or it's, I want to, you know, write my first kernel module or write a user space application that does this. Or, you know, my case was, I want to be able to use this C library, but from my shell script. So I'm going to write this little adapter that's going to provide a nice command line interface to it. Uh, and once you have, you know, kind of this idea of what you want to build, it uh, becomes much easier to do it than, you know, I want to build something for to, I want to build this thing. And, you know, you might never finish it uh, or whatever, but um, by having something to strive for, it makes it much more easy to make progress towards that point. Yeah. You know, I want to be a FreeBSD developer. It's a great goal, but you want to break that down into, you know, I'm going to write this and then I'm going to write that. Uh, and those are the steps I'm going to take towards becoming a FreeBSD developer. Because remember, BSD developer not only means kernel stuff, but also user land, like extend the LS program with just one more letter of the alphabet or any kind of functionality <laughs> that is example, missing. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like actually, there's a, a bug that's been open in, my, in a tab in my browser for about four months now uh, to fix a small niggle with the way the MPS util tool works on freebsd for turning the the flashing light on for a, a dead hard drive uh and the syntax of it could be improved and there's just this little thing that i could fix one of them is so that it's like literally there's one too few or one too many tabs in the the printf and that the help page doesn't line up properly mm. that one someone could do in five minutes but uh there's just a couple of little things in there that i you know they're just slightly rough edges that i could sand down if only i could find a, a round to it under a couch cushion somewhere. Oh yeah, now that you mention it, I think it's something about swap CTL not also properly aligning when you have a large swap space. Maybe yeah, if the device name is too long, like if you have a yeah, GPU yeah, label something or like that. ID, yeah, yeah. yeah so a small things like that. that. It's like this one inch. How hard could it be to solve this? Um, then you're right into it. But yeah, you know, oftentimes it literally comes down to I want to solve these paper cuts. Right, I got the paper cut. It hurts right now. I'm going to fix it so the next person doesn't get this paper cut. Yeah, and then from there, it's just open, wide open space. Because that gives you confidence to do more and look into other issues. Right. Well, yes, as you fix these problems, you'll find the next thing that annoys you and the next thing that annoys you until you've changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history, yeah. Yeah, we look forward to your submissions. I mean, it's always good to have people wanting to help. And that way, uh, it you know levels out over all our shoulders. Okay, I think that's it for this feedback. And we're also at the end of this episode. Huh, that was good. Uh, any last parting words? Nope, see you next week. Yep. 